0: Hey there welcome to SaaS unbound <laughs> no sorry it's a it's a different story today uh so today we have uh, ama uh about product management for b2b SaaS businesses and i'm super excited to welcome rasmus and daniel here rasmus is a founder of bucket And he'll tell you what it is in a second. And Daniel is our own brand CPO at Salas Group and uh, head of product growth. So happy to see you here guys. And uh, I hope you will get as many questions as possible. So Rasmus, can we dig into your background a bit?
1: Yeah, sure. And uh, thanks for having me on, Anna. So I've been in B2B SaaS for uh, almost 12, 13 years now. Uh, I've I've just started my third company, but I have a a background in information architecture and usability. uh, uh, User experience, user journeys, that's really where my background is, but I've done... Uh, two startups now, one in the more developer-focused space and then lately in um, in the product space with Bucket.
0: Okay, awesome. Thank you for an intro. Daniel, what about you?
2: Yeah, also thrilled to, to, to be here and then talk to the product community. Um, see, I'm... Pretty similar to Rasmus, um, like th- uh, 13, perhaps 15 years in, in product in total, but started out as a software developer and not as a UX guy, but uh, kind of developed into that direction. Um, I've been uh, CPO and CTO for for a few startups. Um, I've uh, I've written a book on product management actually. And right before joining SaaS group, where I'm currently heading the central product team and being like a mentoring sparring partner to all our portfolio companies, I headed an innovation lab, um, trying to like build rapid, rapid prototypes and rapid innovation ideas in Fortune 500 companies.
0: Oh, wow, that's, uh, that's super impressive. Like it said in the description, you know, these guys. Uh, together have over two decades of experience, Mm -hmm. something like this. So it's super exciting to, to have you here. And, uh, I have a few questions already, uh, from some of the people that couldn't make it today. And, um, the first one I think is, um, is probably the most important one. Um, how to ensure business success on top of a great user experience. And this is something we talk about all the time on the podcast. So how do you make sure that your business is growing steadily, sustainably, and uh, you're not just pushing um, some feature that nobody wants just because um, you had this vision? So Rasmus, what, what do you think? What, what's your um, trick here?
1: Yeah, well, I think uh, in the past decade or so, I think the bar on user experience has really uh, gotten very high. I think a lot of products, um, they definitely do need to think a lot about the user experience now, where uh, a decade ago or so, it might not have been so important. The key features of your product back then were the were the key to your success. If they were solving the customer problems, then you would be probably in a good position. But I think these days it's very different, right? Um, Slack chat versus hip chat, I think is a good example, basically on par when it comes to features, but one had just a totally different brand persona and a different UX experience. Right. And they just totally blew them out of the water. That's Slack versus hip chat. Um, so I think there was a lot of, uh, similar examples over the past, um, decade or so. So UX has definitely climbed as the bar has just risen over the past decade.
0: Okay. Daniel, what do you think?
2: Yeah, completely agree with that. And um, you know, if you're going strictly by the book, then I would say um, like the user experience should encompass everything the the user sees in your company and the value that that you're providing. So a really amazing user experience will always lead to some kind of business success. Um, but I think you need to be aware of your business metrics as well and see like what parts of your your over-user journey you're doing good and you're doing not so good right now. So let me give you an example. Um, You should be aware of like the conversion rates in the the onboarding funnel as well as the churn rates as well as your customer acquisition costs. And the easiest way to make sure that um, you're not only giving the user what he wants but also getting the value back is to focus on where you are. I would say like the the farthest away from the typical benchmark in your industry. So why, why would you try to improve a churn rate from, I don't know, 2% to 1.5 when your conversion rate, uh, lies at 3% and it's so much uh, less expensive to bump that up to 10%. So that would be kind of a, a tip I would, I would see here to go beyond pure user experience.
0: Okay, that's interesting. And uh, I just want to, uh, to take a little detour uh, and uh, talk about uh, bucket because Rasmus is here. And I know that apart from the product, you guys have got also a methodology uh, that um, that you're you're pushing with the product, but uh, that is completely open source. So uh, can we talk about the methodology a little bit and maybe how it addresses the previous question?
1: Oh, yeah. And 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 maybe if I, if I could just take uh, a short um, step back before answering that, um, I've, as sure. mentioned, I've been in product management and in the startup world uh, for uh, more than a decade. And that's, you know, my, my previous company got acquired by a company that went on to IPO. So I've been in both big, big companies from the ground up and from uh, on the other side and very big companies, more than 2000 or so. Um, Across the board, we've seen that the same problems arise in product teams, and that's basically measuring the the satisfaction of the features that we release. And it's a very complex issue, actually, and um, some teams might have it nailed down. They might have come up with a good bespoke way of measuring, you know, the engagement of features and also maybe from a qualitative aspect, the satisfaction of a feature but it's it's quite often very novel to one team and maybe other teams do it differently. And maybe across the entire organization, teams just work very differently with this. Some are good, some don't do it at all. It's very time consuming. And PMs also come in many shapes and sizes because they come from many different backgrounds, right? So uh, what we've seen in many organizations is an inconsistent approach to measuring um, feature satisfaction if they do it at all in, in the given company. Um, so before this, before diving into Bucket at all, we wanted to come up with a framework that is a repeatable approach to this problem, and that's by creating the, what we call the Stars Funnel, uh, which is, we've read, written about it on starsframework.org. Uh, it's open source. You can apply it to the data that you already have if you're gathering the data today but don't know how to really make any use of it in a consistent way. Then um, go read that, and, and, and then you have a starting point, and of course, we would love to see comments and improvements to it. We we hope as a community that we can improve on it over time. Um, but what it does in short is that it uh, sets you up with a target segment for a feature feature, which is the segment, which is the S in stars. And then the T is how many have actually tried this feature from that segment. That talks a little bit about awareness of a feature. Like is a feature low in adoption because nobody knows about it? Did we do a poor job in terms of messaging or is it, in terms of UX, is it is it hidden in the product so people can't find it? Or is it just not appealing? That's why people are not clicking on it. Like why are the adoption numbers so low? And then the next step is the A, which is the adopted curve, which is what we call the feature activation threshold. Like we know this from user activation in products, like how many have gotten through the key steps to becoming active users of a product. But we think there's a similar approach um, for, for features, especially SaaS-based features where we want customers to come back and use the key features over and over again. So A is uh, the adopted uh, step in the funnel where customers have not only tried it once, but they've come back and used it multiple times and shown like a real interest in this feature. And of the adopted, those adopted um, customers, we of course want to maintain how many are, uh, we, we of course then want to measure how many are then retained over time. Do they come back and use it again and again after showing that initial interest? And then finally, we're adding the qualitative aspect to it. Maybe they're using the feature over and over again on a monthly basis, which is great, but are they actually happy with using it? Or might they just be using it because they have to use it at their job, but it isn't actually great? They prefer to use something else, but they can't because they're on a long subscription or whatever it might be, right? Are the customers actually happy or are they a churn risk? Even though the numbers might look great, they could actually be a lot of details hidden, just the, the, the dig deeper. And you only get to the why behind the, the, the metrics by, by asking customers those questions. And by having a funnel that is sort of mapping out the adopted users and retained users of a feature, you also have a segment of users that you can then prompt, like, are you also happy with this feature? And we use like a simple CSAT score from one to five, but you can do this in in, in, a numer- uh, in a number of ways, right? The most important thing is that you ask why and ask, are you actually happy with this feature? Um, so that's the framework that we came up with. It, it, it's called STARS. And uh, it might not be the most deep framework of all, but honestly, we don't think that's the main problem here. We don't think that everyone needs to become data analysts because they work in product. We don't believe that you need to be able to do Um, what data analysts do, we absolutely need to go deep once in a while because we have very um, complex questions that we need to answer. What we we found is that a consistent baseline across the board and a way to do um, feature satisfaction measurement consistently actually is quite transformative for product teams because then you you will really quickly map out where your biggest fires are. And of course, for some of these features in your product, you might want to do a deep dive, but just knowing... Exactly where are the key features with the lowest satisfaction really fast after releasing them will give you a really, really good tool to get into the iteration mode as opposed to on the feature factory train, right? Where you just ship a feature, celebrate it, and then go to the next backlog item. And then, frankly, forget about that feature because then the following week, you're knee deep in new features. And it takes a lot of work to go back then on a weekly basis and check in on those features that you released over the past quarter. So we feel there's a need for a framework to just get that baseline.
2: I love that. Okay. I love that. Wow. Um, and it's, uh, it's so honest with what's actually happening in product that, you know, you, you're not releasing version 1.0, you're basically releasing version 0.7 for the first time. And if you don't iterate from there, you never like release the, the full potential of that feature and it might not be get really adopted and used and so you drop it and go to the next one but every good feature every good idea deserves a couple of iterations and it's uh, so important to to do that in a
1: structured way yeah and if I can just add one more thing i I mean we've we've we're big fans of Marty Kagan and we've read Impa- inspired and empowered and 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 but not only him like um, a lot of surveys goes to show that modern companies who are software companies to a big extent, they spend between uh, 30 and 35% on R&D. That means product engineers, designers. It's a very high cost center for the business. And then the Marty Kagan reference is that uh, more than 50% of all features simply fail. and And that's, of course, because there are bets on how to solve a certain customer problem. It doesn't mean that the feature shouldn't exist at all. It's just the, the the scoping or the design or the implementation of the feature doesn't hit home. And if you make that calculation, you can say 35% cost center, more than 50% of features fail. That's more than 17% of your total cost, sorry, the resources that are just wasted, you know? So really being able to iterate and get into that groove, I think, can be so transformative. And as I said before, sometimes you need to to dig deep but we also see a lot of customers signing up using the stars framework and 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 really quickly just go like oh okay we need to not work on these backlog items and fix these fix fix these fires over here that we didn't know that we have
0: Okay, makes total sense. And uh, you know, I just got to say uh this is probably the best product explanation that I've I've uh, seen. Uh it's not vague at all and it, it kind of I'm I'm not nowhere near product management, but I kind of wanted to <laughs> to try it.
1: <laughs> That's awesome,
0: thanks. So. <laughs> Thank you, Rasmus. Uh okay. So uh Daniel, what do you think uh about um Trying the features and just mapping which features work and and don't work, or um, making bets on which feature would be the best. So, how to make these bets so that you know you don't lose?
2: Yeah, that's uh, I would say that's the big question of product management. Uh, that's like the the holy grail or why we exist in the first place. Um, and the, I think the 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 second part of that equation is actually iterating on the feature being in touch with your customer base, Uh, you can I don't know, you watch the the metrics, the tracking, you can watch hotshot recordings of the user interaction, you get in touch with uh, specific users and and watch them use it, you look for uh, bug reports and feature requests around that area and, and things like that. And that's super, super important to get that right the other one is actually deciding beforehand what are things that we that we think of in terms of bats or that we want to place uh, place a bat on and um i think this comes this comes down to being on the one side, very driven by specific opportunities, or, or looking at um, at your product uh, strategically. So, where do you want to go? Um, what is our main hypothesis of what we're trying to solve, and how we're trying to solve this? And then trying to um, to ideate solutions and specific opportunities that that fit that bill. And. and work with a lot of small prototypes and 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 small scenarios to to get to know that and you know if if we have the time I think the um, one of my my uh, favorite examples around this is when in the in the 80s I think it was in the 80s when uh, IBM tried to figure out if um, uh, speech to text translation uh, was a thing that that worked and we were decades, decades away of a technology that could actually do it. Right now, we're there, but but back then, it it wasn't even possible. But what they did, they invited some test candidates, set them for a computer, uh, before a computer, and um, you know there there was no no keyboard, there was no mouse interaction, it was just the monitor and a microphone, and they told them, well, just you know just dictate, and it will happen. And they 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 spoke into the microphone, and it appeared on the on the screen. But everything that happened was uh, the the actual cable for the keyboard was just very very long and uh, in the in the next room was a professional typist uh, that just wrote this down. So the whole experiment was like a probably a half day setup and not really expensive. But the feedback um, like 30 40 years ago is still valid today. So people said they loved it. They they really like the experience. But would they buy it? No, they won't, because like, what about privacy in a large office building when I dictate all my things? What about uh, noise around the office? And those are still things that uh, that are holding back on on text uh, speech to text uh, even today, if while the technology is there. And so, thinking about the smallest experiment possible, the least amount of work you can put in there to get an answer to your hypothesis, um, this enables you to to go to start with like a 100 ideas and narrow it down to like five bets that are actually worth pursuing and then you just you know you just need to build them and see what actually works and then you're in the second part of the equation iterating from there and um, of course sometimes iteration is not enough sometimes you a bet won't work out right then you need to drop that feature um But but this is like your your best way to to make sure you're placing only on the high value items.
0: Okay, so for IBM, that was a pretty scrappy technique and (laughs) uh, and actually that's something that I also wanted to ask you guys, because out of um, a few questions that I already have here, um, quite a few have one thing in common. Uh, it's asking how to do product management if you're bootstrapped and uh, you do not have a ton of resources. Is it actually different or is it the same kind of story? Uh, like you said, it's operating quickly. It's placing a lot of bets and, and making sure that you're using the least amount of resources for checking if it works. Um, Rasmus, you're a bootstrap company, so <laughs> you should know. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, we've we, we've gone on to raise money now when we when it, when we figured out that um, this was a much bigger thing that we that I thought initially, but I did bootstrap bucket for to my the first handful of customers or so uh, back in the day. Um, it's a great question. You definitely don't have too many resources. You're just you, right? Um, and uh, or maybe a small team if you have co-founders. Um, but I, if you're starting something new, you you most likely have And a hypothesis about something that needs to change in the market like that's one of the main reasons for starting anything new right so either you want to drastically approach a product category uh, differently than the incumbents out there or you're selling to a sub segment of what the incumbents are already selling to like you can you know for instance make a simpler version of mailchimp or something and then you know get a lot of love behind that because Now Mailchimp has gotten complex to use right once it was just a cute monkey and it was you know easy to use so you can always undercut competitors but i guess that's not really what we're talking about we're talking about how to just make sure that those features really stick and if you have a new novel take on a category or uh, a new take for a subset of customers there are so many good ways to prototype it today I used a lot of uh, Figma prototypes in the early days and it, 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 it's, it has just gotten so accessible and it's so easy to share and show uh, and get comments on that I think find your customers that you think this is a good fit. If you're bringing something new to the market, think find five people who are similar to you who believe the same thing and then show them the prototype. And I think you can get really far with these, with these either wireframing tools or prototyping tools
0: okay daniel what what do you think we're uh we acquire bootstrap companies mostly so uh, do you see any similarities to like what uh what they are doing in terms of uh shipping new features
2: yeah yeah absolutely um and i think overall rasmus is pretty much on point um perhaps uh, something that that makes a difference is if you look at bootstrap startups like pre-market fit or post product market fit. Then a lot of things change. Like when when we acquire companies, they usually have found their product market fit, or actually they're perhaps uh, so mature that, uh, but but you know in, in a phase where they're um, about to lose their product market fit again and need to kind of reinvent themselves. But they're still in that bootstrap mode with very limited resources. Um, so let's say if you're pre post product market fit and you're just figuring out does your product is is the product worth building at all? Then it's kind of a wild west. You know, you have close to zero resources. You don't sleep that much, and you just try to put something out there and and see what sticks and and what customers are, are telling you, and then iterate really fast from there. And you're not iterating in like one percent increments, but rather in a hundred percent increments. And and you're sometimes doing a product pivot like twice a year, and, and, until you found your your like your your vision that that works. But once you're a bit more mature, um, things uh, settle down a bit. And then I would say the, the big challenge that I'm seeing with a lot of companies is to um, you're trying to keep your existing comp- uh, customers happy. And you feel like a good way to do this is just to push out a lot of user requests. Uh, just a lot of tickets you see from user. This is kind of how to make the, the, the base happy. But this kind of stands in your way from seeing the big picture um so i would i would say um, even if your company is five years old um, and like in, in a growth model you would we would say we're kind of stabilizing right now if you put this specific moment in time into like the scale of 10 years then essentially you're at the MVP stage again, and you're just starting out, and you want to go into the next growth phase. So you start looking into what's my hypothesis for the next two years? Um, what, what strategy do we want to wanna continue with? Um, and then the same kind of mechanics apply, but you have to balance that out with an existing product, most of the time with a product that does have considerably tech, uh, technical depth because you you came out of that Wild West phase in the beginning.
3: Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate or customer referral program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage and scale for SaaS companies. Lock your customer acquisition cost and only pay based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Rewardful automatically tracks referrals, calculates commissions, handles upgrades and downgrades all seamlessly in the background, whether you sell one of purchases or recurring subscriptions. Companies like Podia, Copy.ai, Baremetrics, Synthesia, and many, many more are already using Rewardful to add that sweet, sweet MRR to their businesses. Sign up now at rewardful.com for a free 14 day trial and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. Okay, all right, well, thank you.
0: I, I think it's it's very relevant for, for so many companies and it's great that you mentioned um, the market and the market expectations and the market trends. So uh, again, one of the questions is uh, how to keep in touch with the market and align with the user expectations. So um, just taking, the latest AI situation, market screams AI, you know, and uh, everyone kind of rushed into building something in the space. Uh, But I can also see a lot of companies not go into this. So how to balance this and why, you know, one companies choose to to build something right away, some companies still uh, try to look at like, what what's going to happen? Let's start with you.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I think Daniel had a good point before in terms of, um, you know, post product market fit, where you maybe need to reevaluate. Like uh, you've been serving different types of customers, and and uh, now you need to decide which matters. Which way are we going? And I think this is sort of um, relevant here as well. Like there are so many trends, so many things that are going on in the market, and you can get very very per- perplexed if you try to just be on Twitter or wherever any given day, right? There is so much new stuff coming out every single day. And if you pay too much attention to that, I'm worried that you will just run in circles. So I really, really prefer um, product managers who can say no. That's not what we're doing right now. We decided two months ago that this is the direction that we think is the most important one for our company. This is where we see the most upside over time. This is where we see a gap in the market, and then just focus on that for at least a given time of, I would say, probably at least six months, because you can't do much in in a, in a shorter time period, and then pop your head up, and then it's fine to sort of reevaluate, and maybe your product is fit for AI, maybe it's not really, um, but uh, I also really, really love just being able to say no and just go heads down, and then Build something, do something, and then pop up again and reevaluate. So maybe you know a rule of thumb for, for myself is like um, five months head down, one month evaluate mode, and then back into it. And that's basically the cycle that we work at. And that month, uh, every six months, is so frustrating for me. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I don't sleep much because we're thinking about what the next six months will be in terms of roadmap. And that's where I'm sort of allowing myself to take all of the market noise in, if you like. And it's just very, very confusing because you go like, uh, there are so many directions that we can take, but we only have these resources. We can't make it all. And even if we could, we couldn't market it, right? What kind of product would we be? We would end up being, you know, the Swiss army knife and we want to be like a very great hammer for one one problem. Um, so, yeah, I would encourage people to say no and just get to work and, and, and put on, you know, uh, uh, some sort of restrictions on how much you spend on Twitter.
3: Oh, yes.
0: Twitter is <laughs> Twitter is not good. <laughs> Daniel, so what's your trick to fight the buzz of Twitter?
2: Um, well, on a side note, I, I actually am not on Twitter, so I don't have that that particular problem. You abandoned
0: you your Twitter? Yeah,
2: I have kind of an information <laughs> diet on that one. Um,
1: good job, Daniel.
2: Good for me. you. Um. Yeah, if you take this AI example, I think, um, and this is kind of the the corporate approach to product development is to be very technology driven. So, like, hey, a few years back it was blockchain. We were desperately trying to find uh, find a problem for 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 blockchain, um, and now we're seeing this with AI. And I, I would say, basically, not AI doesn't change any of the mechanics of product management you're still trying to, f- to understand the problem the user has and, and figure out a good solution. Now your tool belt you know, or your solution space just got bigger. Now things are possible that weren't possible three years ago. So while evaluating your, your, your problem space and then going into finding a solution, you just have more options and, and you should re- reevaluate the solution that you currently have and see if AI might be a better fit but it's still problem driven and customer driven. It's not technology driven. And the other thing is that I'm seeing that a lot of companies don't understand what AI brings to the table for them because they, they think it's like this magic bullet that will solve all their problems. But the, the technology actually is, is kind of a commodity. So for very, very few companies, they, they get like a competitive advantage through, through better models or, or, or better technology. They kind of all use the same stuff. Of course some some some, uh, some others but, but for most companies that's the case so i would say if you don't have like a, a big set of data then you don't create a competitive advantage out of ai but on the other hand if you're not um going that route or at least like trying to salvage what's what's available right now then you might be left behind so it won't get you in front of the competition but you can very easily be left behind
0: Okay, and uh, on that note, since we already touched upon AI, you know, we always talk about AI for marketing, for content, AI for product management, yes or no? <laughs>
2: Uh-oh, we're done. <laughs> There's something that's uh, that's going around right now a lot in the community is this, um, this saying, or I, I believe it was a tweet. You know, I only get the screenshots, but not the live tweet. But um, I think it was... Uh, if AI is gonna, gonna replace the product managers, then users and people would actually have to be able to, uh, to explain what they really need and, and articulate <laughs> like their, their problems. So guys we're yeah. safe. And I, I think yeah. that's, um,
1: that's a very valid point here.
0: <laughs> okay. Rasmus, do you think so as well?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. I think for, um, analysis, I think it's a great tool. Um, you know, it's replacing Google in many ways, right? And um, and it's great for just doing really quick research on competitors uh, or on your market or whatever you need to sort of influence your roadmap decision or whatever you're doing as a product manager. I think it's a good re- re- research tool, but I hope it's not completely going to replace us.
2: And perhaps <laughs> very, very basically, GPT is an awesome tool to say no. So, whenever you need to write that message to tell a stakeholder, a team member, a customer that this feature won't be built, ChatGPT comes up with amazing templates and amazing <laughs> text to actually <laughs> send that email. So, um, that's a good friend.
0: Yeah. It's mm, very yeah, polite. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. On that note, I just recently had to um, write to the support to to tell about the feature that didn't work for me and it was so difficult and i would and i thought okay so that's so good that i'm actually talking to a person and i can just like talk about the entire situation including my emotions not just (laughs) what happened um but uh i imagined what it would be if i was talking to ai It would be a totally different story and probably not um, result in anything uh, good for me. But, yeah.
1: If uh, I could yeah. just add, like, I love that Intercom motion when Intercom came around with the chat widget. And when you clicked it, you um, you spoke to someone from the product team quite often. Sometimes from the support team, of course, depending on the company size. But because it was so new and novel and it wasn't overloading people yet. It was just such a great experience. It was, it, it was literally like walking into a physical shop and just asking the person behind the counter, do you have this in blue? Or, you know, um, it was so great. But nowadays it's just dead, right? Because you hit this chatbot and it really rarely works and you feel like shouting agent at it, but it doesn't, you know, understand. Sometimes, occasionally, I guess it's okay. And I understand why companies are doing it because they get a lot of you know much, many more uh, tickets when they make the chat so available but it was such a great experience and i love com- companies who invested in 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 support that way and and the the whole motion back then was that don't treat support as a cost center treat it as like a good ux experience and you'll get lifetime customers and that has sort of, sort of gotten away because we're very cost focused right now in this climate anyway i'm i'm drifting but that was just such a nice period in the life of uh, online businesses, I think as a customer. Right,
0: But uh, on that note, we have a a brand that uh, really supports real conversations. It's pipeline. Right. And uh, I did a a podcast with both founders and they were uh, talking about exactly that, that you just have to be out there. You have to have your your phone number on the uh, on the website and you have to pick up that phone. Otherwise, you know, people will be just so frustrated with the, with the entire experience. All right, maybe a little bit over that uh, AI topic. Another question that I have is how to balance operative short-term stuff and visionary idea exploration. So again, like what if you have a ton of. Tech debt, or you have a lot of support tickets, and you kind of want to dig into that, but you have an idea of how to grow your company and how to build something amazing that's going to take you to the next step. How to prioritize?
1: Um, Well, (laughs) I think the metrics will probably tell you. Like, if you have customers that can grow from a, you know, they can they can expand based off of the features that they already use in your product, Uh, so the customers are. uh, retained and might be in a position to expand over time, then I think you just double down on that. But if some of the the metrics don't look as great, like you have somewhat high retention, not a lot of expansion, then of course, over time you will get to to nothing, right? And uh, or the acquisition of new customers will be very expensive. And then you need to find other, other more visionary routes for your business because this one isn't working as it is. It could also be just making those features better that you already have. And the sort of the direction is good enough as it is. You just need to iterate and improve. Um, but I think the metrics can, can tell you, give you some guidance here.
0: Okay. Daniel, um,
2: perhaps a, a different take on this. Um, I think for, first of all, you need to be very aware of these different timeframes. And it's so easy to get stuck on the short term things and the operative work and um building like deliberately building a few points into your process into your 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 product process to take a step back and evaluate the big picture and and, and talk about like balancing this um is, is very important um and, and two like two techniques that I like to 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 use here is um on one side the explore exploit ratio so being very um very explicit about how much of our company resources are we investing into, like exploration, product discovery, figuring out what to build next, what to build in the future, and what amount are we investing into getting this on the street, into exploiting those findings and execution. And it's uh, typically something like a like a sinus curve, where there is the phase in your company where you need a lot of learnings because you don't know what what actually will work. But afterwards, you want to go into execution mode and actually ship that to the customer. But over time, you will just run out of learnings and you need to ramp up that discovery again. So being very explicit in your, like, I don't know, quarterly meetings or something like that about this ratio between explore and exploit is, is something that, that's really helpful. Um, and I also like to do, um, like, I like the design sprint uh, method to, to run prototypes on, on, on more complex situations. And I typically advise companies to do this, not only for what they're working on right now, or what's like the next item on the roadmap, but, um, I don't know, every half year or quarterly, or at some point in time, reserve a bit of this resource to run a few design sprints on future scenarios. So how could we imagine our product to develop in the next three, four years? And you might have like five different scenarios in mind right now. And if you can like debunk half of that right now with like a a week of time, um, that already narrows down your, your your vision so much more. And you can translate those findings and those ideas that are not relevant like, like immediately, but you can then build towards that goal and make it into operational findings that you use right now. Um, so those are like two mechanics that I like to use.
0: OK, thanks for sharing those. Uh, I think that's really helpful. Uh, another question is um, me because <laughs> uh, i wanted to to dig a bit deeper into that and um when you're building a company right it's it's not just building a product uh sorry when you're building a product it's not just a product it's also a company so um it's not just the product team involved right there are marketers there are the sales teams and whatnot uh so how to make sure that all of them are aligned. So your sales team says that your customers like this feature, but you don't you you had a different idea for it, you wanted to develop it further or scratch it altogether. Your marketing team says that, you know, AI is the next big thing, but you don't want to go there. So how to make sure that all of your teams are aligned for for the goal. Rasmus
1: Um, So bucket isn't so big that we have so many functions, well we do, but we are still a small team of ten, but uh still find it interesting already at this point, but of course, as mentioned before, I've also worked in a very large large organization recently where we had to do a lot of stakeholder management and enablement and you know gather feedback from all different functions, be it marketing sales or support um but again I think having having a clear direction in mind and uh, something that you believe in is really is really, really super powerful and also effective in terms of just squashing those constant conversations. Uh, It's not that you don't accept feedback at all, it's more there's a very uh, clear direction that everybody can look at and sort of internalize, and then they have sort of the equipped to have customer conversations about what the roadmap might be looking like in the future because we're going in that direction. And something we use is the jobs to be done framework, and we have like three jobs that are prioritized. Those are the main uh, pro- uh, customer problems that we want to address, um, and we try to be quite specific about who exactly are of, of the types of customers we're talking about, what exactly the type of problem that we want to address, and what sort of the motion the customer is in when they um, um, when we when we want to help them. Uh, and just writing that down and be very clear and, and giving them numbers, job one, two, and three. One, two, and three. And then whenever an uh, idea pops up, you can take that idea and that piece of feedback from a customer or internally and just point that over to your jobs. Like, does this help? If we did this, did will it help any of these jobs at all? If yes, then discuss it and prioritize it. And maybe it goes on the roadmap. If not, then it just gets scrapped straight away, right? And that's just a very, very easy way to not constantly... Get into a conversation about, yeah, we could do that. I wonder if we should do that. You know, it didn't have like a direction, uh, so you don't zigzag so much. Of course, picking the jobs every half a year or every quarter, polishing them is the hard part. Um, and then it becomes really like it, it when you when you do this for the first time and you do it right, it it really becomes a very powerful and and daunting exercise of a Google. Doc that will just, that will basically just have ripple effects to everything. Like the lines and the the exact words that you put in those jobs will have an impact on everything you do in your company the next six months. So that Google Doc becomes so important. Um, But I think that's how it should be.
0: Okay, Daniel, how do we do it at SAS Group? (laughs) Um,
1: Pretty
2: similar, actually. So I, I, I really love that, um, also a big fan of jobs to be done. And um, I, I like your approach there. Um, I think whether you use like jobs to be done or anything else, um, it's about being very transparent with everyone and being very explicit. So the thing is that um, having a vision and, and having a strategy in place, um, this needs to mean something. It needs to be actionable. So the, the worst kind of strategy is something where you you know sat down in the leadership team for a week and had workshops and then you you write something and it gets printed on the coffee mugs. And, and that's about it. And afterwards, for every single decision, every single prioritization uh, task, uh, people get together and do ad hoc discussions around this. If your strategy isn't allowing you to just pull this out of the drawer and say, well, for 80% of our issues, the answer is in the strategy, then the strategy isn't worth anything. So being very explicit about this um, is is the key here. Um, Something that I've seen a lot in growing companies. So if you're approaching like 30, 40 employees um, and you have a lot of customer facing uh, staff, like customer success, consulting, sales, things like that. Um, then for product management, uh, backlog management becomes kind of an issue when all the people just throw over some some tickets, some ideas, and expect you to to get get back um, get back to you on that. And and they kind of you know um, sometimes you have backlogs with I don't know two thousand items and some of them three years old and people ask you hey, last year I've, I've uh, told you about this one. Now the customer is asking again, so uh, where are we on that? Shipping soon? Um, so one very, I wouldn't say it's the person of the best approach or something that really worked for me is to put some kind of barrier in place uh, for getting feature requests. Like I like to have a uh, like a small document with you know, outlining the problem, the kind of user scenario, the expectations behind this and things like that. They take out like, let's say four hours to fill out for, for a sales rep. And if the idea that they're having or that their customer, that customer pitched to them, isn't worth investing four hours of their time to, to get this to in into the backlog, it probably isn't worth four months developing that feature. Um, so creating. Uh, some kind of barrier, but that's also useful in terms of you know thinking about the the feature and the problem and getting some 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 data in, into the process. Um, really, really helped uh, helped in a lot of teams um, bring this mass of tickets down to only the relevant ones. Um, and also people started to understand what product managers actually do. And that if they don't write that document, then the PM has to write that, but not only for that single idea, but for a hundred different ideas. Um, so that, that helps in the communication
1: as well. I think okay. that's great. I, I love yeah. that. Sending over Slack messages or receiving DMs yeah. from all around the company is just so cheap, right? And, um, you're on the hook for all, if you want to be a nice guy and reply, um, uh, and and yeah, that's just very time-consuming and not very impactful. So yeah, I love that. I I love that approach.
0: Okay, and I loved your cruel but awesome <laughs> four-hour job. <laughs> but uh, since we started talking about uh, about teams already, and this is something I remembered from uh, the last podcast that we shot, the founder was talking about the way they structure teams around. Uh, a certain feature that they want to build or a certain problem that they want to solve. And uh, what he was saying was that uh, usually you have marketing department and the sales department and product management, and each department kind of just does their own thing. And then they just pass it on and pass it on and pass it on. Uh, And what they do instead is they, um, they create uh, this feature department or that problem department where, uh, around this feature, they have a marketer and the salesperson and a product manager and whatnot. So what do you think is the best way to structure work around a problem that you're trying to solve? And is there maybe a third, uh, way, which is even better? Rasmus, how def- do you do it?
1: Yeah, no, I, I really like that approach of getting most functions involved with a feature very early on, it's often so hard to do in practice because people are so busy taking features from, from A to B, depending on where they are in the whole motion, right? But we are really modern companies, uh, teams of that work in the scope of features. Some some design them, some implement them, some market them, some support them. But then we have like our fixed timeframe with that feature. And bringing people out of that and then onto a new thing is often very, very hard. But I do think it's very powerful. And um, a good example is just a salesperson walking into such a you know, a meeting saying, like, how do we sell this? This is very complicated or this requires all of this context to even get the value of X, right? Can not we make sure that our customers even grasp all the great tech or whatever it might be that is behind this? Uh, and sometimes it's not hard sometimes it's very hard and just making sure that you get that conversation early on i think is super important a pragmatic approach is probably to just vanity not not vanity just sanity check your idea in terms of you know design and implementation with those stakeholders if you like uh early on before getting into implementation so they might not need to be like a features team but they're at least heard very early on in the process so if anything is obviously not going to work for each of the functions, they will have a a chance to say so early on.
0: Okay, that makes sense, Daniel. What what do we do, or maybe what could we do differently?
2: Um. Well, yeah, I think Rasmus is completely on point that there are you know that the ideal world, and um, then you need to find a pragmatic version. Um, I'm a big fan of the of the shaper process uh, populated by by base um, where you have like a you have a shaping cycle where ideas or these bats that we we talked about um, you know, they start to take form, they start to, start to take shape and and are detailed before they then go into the cycle um, to to be actually developed by the team. Um, and so, two mechanics here to to be aware of that are not like super obvious, I think. Um, during this this um, shaping cycle, so starting from your bet is just like a word, like we're going to do analytics 2.0 for our product. Everyone has a different understanding of what, what that could mean. Um, so you have like a few weeks time to give this more more detail and do this publicly, like have a shared Google document um, where you you see the current draft and all people um can t- can give feedback on that can read this and and ask their questions and 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 try to to ideate with the with the ux team with the product team together um so that's like a, a first way to make sure that different uh, departments different teams were involved in the creation process and the last step is there's something that regardless if you're using Basecamp or if you're running Scrum, for example, that a lot of teams don't get right, um, is they're seeing this this sprint, this iteration, the, the development team is working in um, as kind of a silo. So you get the tickets at the beginning, then you work, let's say four weeks, and then you have this in Scrum, it's called the sprint review, where you're showcasing what you've done. And I think the, the worst thing you can do is to start developing something for four weeks and then just pop out of nowhere and, and show the final product. Um, so I think after a few days of development, um, you, you have something, even if it's a very small part of the user interaction, you have something that you can show people. You can show this to customers you can just call them hey do you have a half an hour i'm working on something i want to get your feedback and you can do this with people from sales with people from the customer support as well and take them with you on the journey Um, so in the end when when you finish that that iteration it shouldn't come as a surprise what you've done to anyone in the company it should just well we knew all along what was going to happen we were part of that and now it's finally officially released that's what should be happening um i think that's that's the the key here to just take people with you and are not afraid of showing a draft and and the not working prototype uh, inside that process
3: okay
0: all right that makes complete sense all right uh and um well, sometimes we have to ship features. Uh, sometimes we want something new, but sometimes we want to take some features off. They don't make make any more sense. So um, what would be the KPIs or the success metrics that would show us that, you know, this is not working and maybe something else would, would make more sense um, in this place? What are you using guys, Rasmus?
1: Well, okay, well, I, uh... You almost set me up there. Well, we use bucket, right? So, <laughs> we um, we have this audit matrix, which is very powerful, where you can chart all of your features, um, sort of, uh, filtered by a certain segment of customers, like high-paying customers, low-paying customers, new trials, whatever. And then you have frequency on one axis, and then on the other axis, you have um, the amount of um, retained customers using this feature, right? And then you can sort of check in on that matrix for relevance, relevancy over time, because some features, they're not just stale in like they're in the top right quadrant forever, they will, over time, digress and be used less and less, maybe because they're being uh, uh, the customers are shifted to use another functionality in your product or whatever it might be. And we show these trend lines on buckets, so you can see over time. This feature was up here three months ago, and it's gotten over here, and it's becoming to become. It's, it's starting to become a bad trend, and then you have this to keep an eye on it. And just getting that matrix for your key features every month as a report, it's an amazing way to just make sure that you haven't all of a sudden, you know, um, missed that one of your key features isn't really that loved anymore.
0: Hi. Uh, what about Daniel?
2: Um, well, honestly, now, uh, after this talk, I would say, um, going with, with a stars approach and, and using something like Bucket sounds like an amazing way to deal with that. Um, so, uh, definitely our, our portfolio companies will be, will be looking into that in the future. Um, but I think the, the one thing is to, to know what feature to sunset. Um, but I would say that a lot of teams deep down at least they they know what kind of feature isn't isn't getting that much love but then actually making the decision and 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 taking that feature out uh, and how to communicate that to users um how to um some sometimes not only like taking a feature away but um you you're coming from a product 10 years of technical depth and it's so hard to further develop that and then you want to do a, kind of a product revamp, you're going to the 2.0 version. And this is your one opportunity and time to get rid of like 20 30 40% of the, what's not working, and continuing with a with a leaner version iterate from there. But the usual approach is we first we build 100% of what has been there before, in a new design, new technology, and then we iterate from there. Um, so actually making that decision and how to communicate that to users, um, and bringing old customers along into the new world. That's where I see a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of companies struggling.
0: Okay. All right. Well, uh, just like I expected, uh, we're almost an hour here and we started getting <laughs> more questions, uh, as always. So. Um, A new question is how do you approach customers to ask for their feedback in general? And do you have some strategies to increase participation in customer uh, feedback
1: surveys? (laughs) I have to talk about what we do at Bucket again, I'm sorry. But it does make sense to mix the quantitative analysis with the qualitative insights. Is because it, it sets you up for asking customers that have recently adopted a feature for real, what they feel about it in that point in time. So you can ask people at the right time what they feel about a feature. Um, so mixing those two will yield many more responses because people are asked at the right time. Whereas if as a PM, if you're just reaching out to some of your biggest customers or you know some ambassadors in various organizations of your product and ask them about feature A, B, and C, They might not have used them maybe somebody else on the team is using them but here you can ask the ones who are actually sitting with the features right now and then pop up that question at the right time what do you actually feel feel about this because most likely they're trying to solve some problem right now with this feature so they're very motivated to like you did and like have an emotional response to say like this is not great like i was trying to do x but it just doesn't work and speaking about the whole chat ops thing, uh, or the chat bot thing, I guess, um, if there's a sense that whatever feedback you put in, in that text box is getting received by the product teams who is building this feature right now, I think that again, you will increase the likelihood of getting good responses because, as a customer, you're helping yourself, you're telling the people building this feature, how to make it better. And then maybe if you're lucky in two weeks, they, it will be better. And therefore your life will be better, right? I think that's drastically dis- diff- different than getting like a NPS score banner or something like that. So try to build like a, a funnel between your product team and the end customers and then ask them at the right time.
0: That's a really good one. I was not feeling lucky. I once uh reported i don't know a bug or something and actually uh i don't know i think it was like vp of support i'm not sure what was the title but it was somebody uh in like the general management and they were like okay sure like tell us more uh and i did and they never talked to me again (laughs) so it's not just you know, addressing an issue. It's kind of like, like you said, maybe I wasn't so lucky. Uh, But Daniel, what do you think? Um, Is there a way to, to make people um, communicate with product managers about the
3: features?
2: Mm. Well, I would say like the pragmatic answer is uh, you need to give them some kind of incentive. Sometimes, you know, it's just can get them an Amazon vouchers. Sometimes it's uh, uh, giving them some some free bump into a higher tier of your product uh, to value them. Some companies have better relationships with their customers. Some have uh, less good relationships. But actually, I I want to make this more complicated because what what a lot of people don't really see is um please do if if we take a a company um it is for a lot of startups they have like a conversion rate let's say from i don't sign up uh, or from from trial to actually paying customer of let's say five percent so afterwards they're like um applauding themselves that they're being super customer centric and speaking to a lot of their customers and touching base with them and iterating on feature requests um but you know those customers they already bought they, they already selected your product, but from those hundred customers that, so from the hundred customers that have interested in your product, that see the value and the value proposition, um, you're not talking to the 95% that could have been um, converted into your product. You're talking to the 5% that already did. Um, obviously, it's so much harder to talk to people that are not your customers, uh, but that's That's, I would say, uh, where the the actual money lies to understand why people did not convert. So you want to spend as much time as possible, trying to figure out and how to talk to those 95 people out of the 100 and not to the five that that you already own. Of course, you know, being in touch with your customer base, uh, thinking about retention, that's all valuable. I'm not saying you shouldn't do this. Um, But it shouldn't be the only thing you're doing, you should be thinking about those 95 other customers.
0: Okay, you did manage to make it a bit more complicated. Thank you, Daniel. (laughs) All right. And uh, I just have uh, one more question, because uh, we have to finish after an hour, I promised you guys. So um, the question that always pops up during the podcast, and I think it's super relevant here as well. uh, What is the hack that helps you in product management? Is there any scrappy technique something that it's not going by the book uh right it's something that works just for you something that you've implemented mm. and you've understood that you know this is something really cool that works for product management and uh, now you have to
3: share it with us
1: right okay <laughs> well i think if i understood the uh, question correctly i think i'll go with the uh... Something that is probably a common advice at this point, but building in in public is just so, so powerful. It's crazy, it's just so good uh, because people want to buy from people and not companies. And when you're just one or two or you don't even have a logo yet, you're just tweeting or writing on LinkedIn from your own personal account because you're you're passionate about a certain topic, people will respond to you in such high numbers because you know they root for you. They want you to succeed, but they also want to as part of that give you their their take on the, the 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 space that you're in. So I did that so much in the beginning. I reluctantly have sort of slipped and not doing it as much more. I should get back to into it. Now I feel bad.
0: Okay, don't. Uh, you know, we got you. <laughs> so someone knows. Uh Daniel, what's your hat?
2: Um I'd say I'm a huge, huge fan of, um, of pragmatic prototypes, like the, like the IBM experiment. And there are a lot of ways to, to do things like that. And one of the, the easiest ways that a lot of companies don't actually do is to just put a fake button into your product, you know, just put it there where, you, where, where it should go afterwards and click the and track the clicks. Um, and that, you know, if you are nice then afterwards you're showing a page like hey this isn't actually shipped yet but thanks you for your your interest would you mind joining the the waiting list the newsletter or getting in touch with our you know with our user experience team to to figure things out but even if not even if it if it feels broken um, if you have a lot of customers or you have some some traffic on there you just get the data that you want without building the feature so this is like a for a lot of lot of products, like a 15 minute deployment to figure out if this feature has actually some, some, some traction or not.
0: Okay, I feel like, like how many times can you do that? Because, you know, if I go into the app and uh, the first time the button doesn't work, I feel like, okay, a bug, but then the second button doesn't work and the third button doesn't work the next month. So when is the, you know, when should I stop it as a product manager?
2: I think you need to be aware of if you're having a product with one experiment in there, or if your whole product is an experiment. <laughs> okay. So obviously I would say you should run one or two of those, uh, those experiments at a, at a time and be like, um, you should be aware of that. This is a hack that you can use, but it shouldn't be overused, but there are just like features that are super complement uh, co- uh, complex to implement where you t- would take months to to actually ship um and to test drive that in in some way obviously you can still do like figma prototypes and usability tests before and to figure those things out um but with those tests you can never actually get a some kind of value for like is this viable like, like do people actually actually want to use that? But if you bring this into the user interface and people just jump on that, they just think, Oh, this is, this makes me curious. This is something that I would, I would be interested in. Uh, then this is a strong signal that this is something that you should be building.
0: Okay. All right. Well, I think that's, uh, that explains it. Definitely. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much, Rasmus. Thank you uh, for explaining the methodology and telling us more about bucket. You know, Daniel is definitely sold. So we're trying Bucket soon. (laughs) And uh, yeah, Daniel as well. Thank you for making the time. It's been amazing listening to you too. Thank you for sharing your experience and uh, hope we can do it again someday.
2: Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for having us.
0: Thank you and take care. Bye.